This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Today, the college cheating scandal. Our guests are Anna Muller from the University of Chicago and Seth Aberton from the University of British Columbia. Our discussion was recorded on Wednesday, March 13th, 2019. So I don't know about you guys, but the issue on top of everyone's list um, in my world, especially on Twitter, is the college admissions scandal. Yesterday, two actresses, Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin, I guess. Who are they? Does anybody Loughlin. know who they are? Loughlin. Yeah. So one was on Desperate Housewives and one was uh, Aunt Somebody on Full House. Right. And I, and I saw a very funny tweet that showed uh, one of the Olsen twins holding up two revolvers when she was like, you know, two years old. And it says, it's time to bust it you know, anti out of jail. <laughs> and also the nervous guy from Fargo. He's somehow enmeshed in he, this. He's uh, Huffman's husband. Right. Oh, that's right, a, right. What's his name again? William, uh, William, Macy. William H. Macy. And many wags. I, I saw like 18 tweets uh, that all said something to the effect of, um, you know, this is like his character in Coen Brothers movies, but for yeah. real with this kind of. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Anyhow, let's do some background. So on March 12th, they were charged with being part of a corruption scandal in which people arranged to have ringers take SAT tests for their kids, and they paid off college admissions officers to get their kids into schools. I think you see- Oh, you're leaving out that uh, the, the main thing was bribing uh, college coaches right. to use some of the recruited athlete slots, uh, and then just, the person would just never actually show up for the team. Huh. Oh, like that. And sometimes these would be people who had never actually played the sport that they were being right. recruited to play. Just total fraud, total fraud, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not know that part. And mm-hmm. just one other reason for my negative feelings towards college sports in America. <laughs> Save that for another day. So, and it's on the front page of the post. Everybody's up in arms on Twitter. Who wants to take the first crack on this? The college admissions scandal. What's your take? I'll take the first crack. Uh, I, so here's the thing. I don't even know why people are acting shocked and dismayed. I mean, is it just that this isn't the super wealthy who are doing this now, but now the just wealthy are doing it now? Is that is that what is putting our quote-unquote meritocracy in crisis I mean, well, that's exactly what people were discussing is you know um why not just go through the development route because it's an open secret that at a lot of major uh privates and there was a very good book on this by a wall street journal reporter um i'll find the name in a second um that you know development will get you in that if you give enough money uh, you'll get it. And actually, the book, which was written well before the 2016 election, talks about um, Jared Kushner as one of the most uh-huh. notable cases. Oh, Price of Admissions, that's the name of the book. And I, I recommend it. It's very interesting. And it has stuff on gift exchange, which is a, why I've been reading it. Well, the reason why they don't go through the development. They're not that rich. Exactly. They're rich <laughs> enough to pay some major bribes. They're rich yeah. enough to bribe a women's soccer coach, but they're not rich enough to bribe the university institutionally with a, you know, a new science building. Right. Mm-hmm. I had a similar reaction, Leslie, where I was just sort of like, I mean, isn't it an open secret? Like, like, why are we so shocked that like wealthy people? Um, I mean, I do think this is a kind of egregious way of like gaming the system. It's definitely much more blatant than, 
my naive little imagination could have come up with if I were a parent trying to get my, well, also I don't have that much money at all, (laughs) but I mean, but also like there's just a, a tremendous history of, of, you know, of research that documents that privileged, uh, youth have many more pathways to, you know, accessing college. Um, I mean, through the legacy system, through, you know, just test uh, course preps, you know. So I guess it's just, it's an egregious example of something that I personally already knew was happening, you know. Well, test prep doesn't work. Um, you know, I, I always describe test prep as the Satan of the theodicy of meritocracy, where it's a very convenient thing to say, here's how, because you're right that income is highly associated with SAT scores and college admission and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, and famously, if you look at like really good colleges, they'll admit more from the top 5% than from the first two quartiles, um, all that sort of thing. But test prep is not the mechanism. Test prep is good for something like 20 to 50 SAT points. So, you know, the thing, people like to blame test prep because it's a very um, facially plausible mechanism for how income would translate into college admissions, right? It's something that promises to um, take money and turn into test scores. And of course, test scores turn into admission. And so you can, you can almost imagine like that arm wrestling meme where, you know, one arm would say, you know, um, critics of the college admission system and how it perpetuates inequality. And then the other arm would say test prep companies. And then over the hand, it would say, um, you know, the belief that test prep actually works in raising your SAT score by hundreds of points, but it doesn't. Anytime anyone's actually studied this, it raises your SAT score by well less than a hundred points, typically a couple dozen points. And that's not making the difference between, um, you know, Berkeley and Harvard or between Berkeley and, you know, Cal State or whatever, uh, not anywhere close to it. But other things do matter, right? Other things do matter, yes. Like district does matter, prestige uh, high schools mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, all the extracurricular activities matter, um, you know, and this scandal was primarily about bribing college coaches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there also was the aspect of um, maybe not test prep per se, but people paying to basically get you their kids to cheat on the SAT. Right. Yeah. So that, what surprised me about that is not that there's cheating on the SAT, but that there's cheating on the SAT in the United States. Um, You know, there's been a series of news stories about um, cheating on the SAT in Asia. Um, And in particular, Reuters had a big story in 2016 um, talking about how you know, there's systematic cheating on the SAT, much of which involves uh, test prep companies, and to a certain extent, the admissions offices institutionally, not just individual officers mm-hmm. being bribed, but institutionally, admissions offices are in on it because they want the tuition, and they're kind of taking a, uh, they want to look the other way, and they're kind of half knowing that uh, the the numbers they're getting and the applications they're getting are bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually was not surprised that it was happening in the United States. What I'm surprised at, because I'm quite certain SAT cheating has been going on for quite some time, right? It's just the methods of cheating have changed. I'm surprised that there aren't more stories about this in the American media, right? Right. I was surprised by that, too. I think... And I haven't been following Twitter as closely as I normally do, but I, I was kind of surprised that the the bribery of, and the scholarships has been sort of quieter than the 
SAT, ACT cheating. Uh-huh. I mean, that's a, that's a huge deal. And it, it quickly reminded me, actually, when Anna and I first went into the field in this you know small affluent community that we call Poplar Grove to study suicide, the first day of interviewing kids, we both, when we debriefed, were just shocked at how much pressure there was to get scholarships for all sorts of, you know, not major sports, not like basketball and football, but that seems like a, a major pathway to getting into to bigger, you know, more prestigious schools. And the fact that this, you know, this was on ESPN. That's where I actually learned more about the bribery <laughs> scandal than on Twitter. Seth, do you want to explain how sports works differently in Canada? You're at UBC. You know, I actually, I've only been here for a couple of years, so I'm not entirely sure how the, the scholarship system works. I know that it's got a much more damped down presence on the campus. I, I know we have a good baseball team. <laughs> That's yeah. about. Did you, did you have them? Like, I remember when I, when I went to school in Canada, there, mm-hmm. were, there were no athletic scholarships. It was uh, like varsity sports were extracurricular activities. Yeah. I, when I went to college, I think the only ones I knew of for sure were the major ones like baseball, football, basketball. I, I was at Western Michigan for undergrad and hockey was a pretty big deal too. But I didn't know there were scholarships for like field hockey yeah. and soccer. I mean, I, I, it makes sense, right? It's a, it's a one more path to getting into a university. But at a major school, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, affluent folks are pursuing scholarships when they could very well pay for the education themselves. Well, and one interesting thing to also like, you know, add to the conversation is that like some of the most elite colleges don't actually give out like merit scholarships. They only give out need-based scholarships. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not the same as athletic, but it's, there is this sort of interesting um, breakdown in between the elite schools that will, you know, give out any uh, merit versus not, um, I know the idea at my college was basically I, I went to Wellesley College, um, which is a sort of elite seven sister school outside of Boston. And, you know, they they basically say if you get in, you're you're you know, everybody's sort of equal. And so we don't you know delineate who's more meritorious than others. Um, mm-hmm. But they do give out need based scholarships. But, you know, in the and to the you know, to the extent that you're from a community that really places a lot of, uh, you know, emphasis on getting a merit scholarship, that's actually going to, you know, mean that you can't go to some universities who just won't even consider it. You know, one of the things that this story also prompted me to think about, it brought me back to the bell curve. Yes, to the bell curve. And and what I was thinking was, I mean, for example, like someone was bribing someone to get their kid into USC, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the heck? And I'm like, you know who does that? Who does that is someone who's like convinced in some ways that America is a meritocracy or that at least people think it's a meritocracy, number one. Number two, if I'm wealthy and successful, that's a sign. It must be a sign that I'm smart, right? Because only those who are smart and who merit it do very well, right? Number three, my kids are going to do well not because I'm successful, but because, you know, they won the genetic lottery, right? I mean, my genes got passed on, right? And if after all of your success and all your great genes, your kid can't get into USC on their own, you're just like, I'm sorry, like, it would be shameful. So I am willing to go through all of these lengths just to 
just to like, I don't know, meet this expectation that if I'm this successful, I must be smart. I must be deserving. My kid must be smart and deserving too, because otherwise I, I'm basically a failure. Or you could be looking at regression to the mean type of thing, you know? Like Yeah, that's what Kieran was saying. He was yeah. talking he had a series of tweets that were talking about his regression to the mean and, and in particular the, the ceaseless struggle against regression to the mean, which is a powerful force. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, and, and uh, you know, you even, you know, somebody, uh, uh, I would say moderately rich, like uh, like a celebrity. I mean, they could probably keep one or two generations going on some level, but they don't have all the money in the world. Like, you know, everybody still has to earn money, I think, to keep that foothold in, in the privileged lifestyle to which they become accustomed. But do you really think there's a payoff to any of this? Like my my general impression is that Americans just way exaggerate what college is about you know it's it's like school maybe that's my perspective teaching at cuny that it's just school and not this like you know institution that will transform your dud into a star of a child but like what what is your take on that do you think that there's a real payoff or do you think it's like a mass delusion i think i think that college is a status symbol and i think that you know to sort of neglect that aspect of going to a school like usc or um believe it or not, the University of Texas at Austin, Mm -hmm. particularly if you're a Texan like myself, Mm -hmm. um, you know, those schools have a lot of like cultural weight. And um, I think that for some families, it's just inconceivable that their kid might go to, um, you know, instead of USC, like University of California Merced or something, even though they might actually grow and, you know, get a good education or, or whatever from different places. I think there's like sort of two processes happening, right? One is a status process. Mm-hmm. And one is, uh, you know, is an actual educational process. I totally agree with that. Actually, I was gonna say I was gonna take a different angle. I kind of wonder how the, the kids, you know, the, the, their kids, the pressure that this puts on them because they had to have known at least part of what was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that the news is kind of focused on Lori Laughlin, the, the full house actress's daughter who posted uh, some tweets about how she didn't really care about school. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to uh, be a social media influencer. Uh, like, like, like my kid. <laughs> it was a, it was a video. Oh, was it a video? <laughs> yeah. So, so you have to realize as a, as a middle-aged man, you're thinking Twitter. But, yeah. That's you know, the first thing off. I thought was Twitter. When I read yeah. This no, no, no. I mean, for, for these like, you know, influencer types, it's mm-hmm. all Instagram. It's all Instagram. Right. Yeah. And YouTube. You have a YouTube channel. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So I just wonder what kind of pressure that puts on, on these kids too, on top of, you know, I know the status does matter and, and you know, having that degree does matter, but I have to think there's some cost to, Oh, daddy bribed, the coach to, right. to send me to school. Now I better not flunk out. Well, it's also like when I hear the arguments for elite schools, I hear it in terms of people, uh, it affecting people's probability of getting extraordinary jobs that are like low probability for everyone. I got to send my kid to Princeton because I want him to work at Goldman Sachs. Like chances are your kid's not going to work there. And like if somebody well, that's not true, yeah, something yeah, like something like fifty percent of all the Princeton grads went to um, investment banking or consulting when we were there. Yeah, I was going to say Wellesley had a really strong pathway um, mm-hmm. to Wall Street. 
Yeah, and wow. how many of them were running funds versus like uh, you know clearing transactions in like? I have uh, absolutely you know. no clue because that, that was right. I was like the rebel econ major who okay. uh, was not going to Wall Street, but <laughs> I actually think a lot of them really did uh, like do like not they were not doing menial tasks after Wellesley um, on Wall Street. I have no doubt about it. I've always wondered, though, like I know that my perception of Princeton, and I wasn't an undergraduate there, was that even when you get in there, there's this crazy status hierarchy. And the kids who are going to roll into a Goldman Sachs job are the kids whose dads are already at Goldman Sachs or something like that. And there's. But does there have to be, a, does there have to be a tangible payoff, though? I mean, can't status for the sake of status be just as much of a motive? I mean, getting the degree and putting it on your resume, regardless of what your ultimate you know, economic goals are, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not important, right? It's not a huge deal. I guess it's weird to me, though. Like, for example, I have a cousin who works at the Social Security Administration with a bunch of people who went to Johns Hopkins Law, right? Mm -hmm. And he went to a lower status school, like they end up in the same place. So for your hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, like what was the payoff ultimately? Yeah, but you're sampling on the dependent variable. Well, you're, you're I don't, snowballing <laughs> from your cousin who has a, mid, a middling well, job. No, if you snowballed I, from your cousin who, I mean, no, it, I'm, I'm it overgeneralizing is, on an N of one. Sampling on the dependent variable is saying a lot of kids from Goldman Sachs got jobs, therefore. No, no, uh, you're sampling on the dependent variable by looking at people who work for the Social Security Administration. You know, if you did it the other way and you sampled on who works for big law, mm-hmm. right? Big law is notorious for putting a premium on degree pedigree. And only hiring people from the top ten, uh, you know, law schools. So if you want to go into big law, you have to go to a top ten law school. No, no, that'd be sampling on the dependent variable, Gabe, because you'd be looking at the outcome and choosing your sample from that. You'd want to know the percentage of kids. You're you're looking at people who work at SSA. No, no, let me finish. If you look at the percentage of kids who go through pre-law and look at how many of them place in the firm, that's the proper way to measure it, right? Like you can't work backwards like that. What what I'm saying is that a a good uh, a prestigious degree is a necessary but not sufficient condition for some parts of the elite. Yes, and I agree with you that it's not necessarily the modal outcome. I, I think it is the modal outcome that at least immediately out of school, something like a majority of kids from really prestigious schools do get what in some sense is a high powered job. They're not necessarily running the firm, but they are working at an important firm straight out of their top 10 law score, straight out of their, you know, uh, top four Ivy's, you know, top three Ivy school, you know, uh, but that doesn't mean that everybody does. Well, I guess we'll need an expert. Yeah, I mean, I think there is enough research to say that it is both, you know, that an elite degree does open doors for individuals. And but it, there's also research, um, you know, by like Michael uh, Gaddis and um, and others like look that shows that, you know, not everybody benefits from an elite degree to the same extent, like the, the you know, um, the job opportunities that are opened by an elite degree. There have been like audit studies of this um, that showed that, for example, like black and white students from, you know, who have exactly the same CVs don't necessarily get the same sort of invitations for for jobs. But, uh, you know, so, I mean, I think there is enough research like that to say that it's both, you know, but, um, but I think it's also sort of a perplexing, it's a difficult thing to study, especially as higher education in and of itself is shifting so much. Um, Mm -hmm. 
which we've seen like these massive expansions in higher education, you know, over the past like 20 or 30 years that are that kind of complicate some of the ways that we can look at these things. But elite degrees matter for sure. But I also really um, I take your 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 point that, you know, that is it really worth it? And, you know, I've, I've actually done admissions like I've uh, Wellesley has this like admissions network where we interview and recruit for them in our local communities. And I have often said that, no, it's not worth going into like two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. Um, to go to Wellesley, you know, if you could go mm-hmm. to your like local state school, um, there are lots of different ways to get a great education, you know, and and debt is a real is a real problem, you know. So our obsession with elites in the United States is probably I, I personally just don't think it's all about you know the education that you gain from those places. You do gain pretty powerful networks, you know. You might have a different experience, you know, if you go to a University of Chicago compared to a University of Texas, but um, I mean, Anna, I think it, I, I think it starts even earlier than that. Sure. Right. I mean, I know people who, I know people who, who've taken out loans to put their children in, in basically preschool. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, that way they're assured a spot in the kindergarten of this incredibly elite, like private school. Yeah. Right. And, and incurring that debt and like tuition at these places are often the same as tuition at, you know, one of the little three or the seven sisters mm-hmm. or the Ivy, right? Um, yeah. So you go into all of that debt so that your kid can go into more debt when they get to one of these schools. It's pretty shocking. <laughs> But, you know, that's also something that happens really like in places like, I mean, like I've seen that in Chicago, right? This is actually a big conversation um, in Hyde Park right now because a lot of faculty um, choose to send their children to this elite private school that's attached to the University of Chicago. Yeah, the lab lab school, yeah. It's very famous, um, John Dewey's uh, school, but... I mean, it's it's outrageously expensive. I don't understand. I'm not a parent, but I don't understand how parents can afford it, even on our faculty salaries, um, which are better than you know a lot of folks' salaries. But that's also ne- like we do not see that in Memphis, for example. You know, or like mm-hmm. I'm from Houston. You don't see that in Houston. So there's also like a very like I mean, there's probably some people in Houston, but there's like I don't know. I to me that also just feels like a very like New York, Chicago, strange thing to do that. It's like a coastal thing, a northeastern thing to obsess over pedigree. I mean, maybe that's just my Texas bias showing, but I feel like that's a story that is is more common in certain places than in others. Yeah, well, to that point, Joe, I think pedigree matters everywhere. It's just that what matters for your pedigree differs. Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. It just might not require the same like investment in like these really high status preschools, right? I mean, it's weird that in some places, to me, it's weird that in some places preschool has such a, a status premium on it. Like, did you go to the elite preschool or not? I'm just like, oh my God, what are we doing? Why are people living in these places? <laughs> like, You know, one thing that interested me is that the parts of the system that you know, the uh, accused were gaming were the parts that were kind of designed to be gamed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't, you know, they weren't, uh, I mean, there were a few things with like the SAT, uh, but for the most part, they weren't uh, cheating on the SAT. For the most part, they were bribing soccer coaches. They were uh, creating fake charities, um, you know, to with fake donations and all that sort of thing. And so for the most part, they were 
not gaming the parts of the system that were designed to be meritocratic. They were just mm. gaming the parts of the system that were designed to reproduce, uh, you know, status. Huh. You know, they, they're they're not doing the kind of things that you saw in the early 20s. You're, they were doing the kind of things that you saw in the late 20s as a backlash to the things in the early 20s, right? This is kind of like Carabelle's Revenge. <laughs> they're doing all the stuff that, you know, was put in in order to maintain wasp closure, uh, you know, in the early 20th century. Um, Wait, Gabriel, for, for listeners who haven't read the book, can you do it in just 30 seconds, Carabelle? Yeah, yeah. So after um, the big, pre- after the Ivies uh, dropped their Greek requirement, they ended up getting a ton of uh, Jewish students admitted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, based on them scoring well on what was effectively the proto SAT. Mm. And there was a fear among the Ivies that, you know, they would eventually become entirely Jewish schools and then they'd have wasp flight from their schools. Mm. And so they created rather, they experimented briefly with Jewish quotas, but they realized that that was kind of tacky to introduce (laughs) Jewish quotas. And so they introduced a, um, a system it was designed to accomplish the effect of Jewish quotas without explicitly doing so. Hmm. And so, you know, this put a heavy premium on athletics. It put a heavy premium on, you know, indications of good character, hmm. basically all the well-roundedness stuff that we still have characterizing the elite college admissions, especially in the post-Grutter era. Hmm. The book's called The Chosen, too, just in case. Yes, The Chosen oh. by Jerry <laughs> Carable. Yeah. yeah. They, thank you for actually saying the name of the book rather than just letting me <laughs> allude a, to it's it. It's a fascinating book. I mean, it's really, truly yeah. one of the most interesting. Are we, so are we really conflating, like, what these schools are about? Like, it, 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 the brand is uh, associated with intelligent people, brainiacs, you know. We're about to cure. No, no, but that's that's kind of the point of the chosen is right. that they didn't want their brand to be brainiacs. That's MIT, right? But right. MIT's for dorks, right? That's the that's right. the character background you give a character on um, whatever that Chuck Lorre show is. Uh, the Wellesley woman approves that message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that's a. I mean, that's a great point, Gabriel. I mean, I think we talked about this a while ago when we were talking about the lawsuit. Um, that the Asian students um, and community brought against Harvard. Um, and I was like, there, it seems like there's this basic assumption that, you know, what makes Harvard Harvard is that everyone has perfect SAT scores, but that is not the case at all. What makes Harvard Harvard is there are people like that for sure, but it's all the other people who come from these legacy families, these families with power and money, right? That's what makes Harvard Harvard. Well, and I do think that legacies are actually like the the sort of elephant in the room in all of these conversations. And I'm always, you know, anytime that like issues around meritocrat, you know, meritocracy and equal access to higher education or affirmative action, I'm just always astounded that more people aren't like outraged by, you know, the role of legacies in elite admissions. Um, that is, you know, perhaps one of the biggest ways that these schools maintain um, the kind of person that they're admitting and in so doing also maintain, um, you know, it's a, it's a very powerful way in which you had to have, you know, if you had privileged parents who were able to go to like Wellesley or Harvard or Princeton, then you yourself have a much like, you know, much higher chance of getting in. And um, I, I'm just always fascinated that we don't talk about that more. Well, we do, we do whenever it comes up, right? <laughs> whenever, I mean, people don't generally bring up alumni, but then, uh, and legacy, but then whenever college admission comes up, it's, it's like, 
Aha, legacy. So th there is some interesting literature on this. So um, Espen Shade and who is his co-author? Chung. Um, in their analysis, they found that legacy status is worth the equivalent of around 150, 200 SAT points. Mm -hmm. um, now, that was based on basically our birth cohort. Um, if I remember correctly, that was for people who started college in 1997. Mm -hmm. So okay. that's a little bit out of date, um, although there's not really any good reason to suspect it's much different now. Um, and then also there's some interesting research by Mir and Rosen that showed that alumni contributions are tied to um, alumni having kids in high school. Mm -hmm. That, you know, basically alumni don't give very much money to their alma maters, and then they start upping their donation patterns dramatically when their kids are sophomores or juniors in high school. And then what else happens is that if the kid is admitted, they continue to contribute to the alumni fund. And then if the kid is rejected, they stop. Huh. So the alumni are behaving as if they believe that alumni donations are a quid pro quo, huh. um, or at least a gift exchange, uh, not necessarily the same thing. They're behaving as if it's a process of gift exchange. And if the school doesn't reciprocate with admissions for their progeny, uh, they don't reciprocate with uh, future donations. One thing that came out in various ways was in, in some ways, this was a gendered story. Um, and I mean that in two respects. Uh, so one is that many, most of the fraud in, involved uh, coaches of women's sports, mm -hmm. uh, basically selling slots on their teams, mm -hmm. uh, not or rather not slots on their teams, but slots with the admissions office. Um, and this struck me as probably a result of... Um, schools having women's teams, but they're not being much fan interest in them. Mm -hmm. You know, so if the schools via Title IX have an institutional commitment to maintaining large women's sports teams, uh, if for no other reason so that they can, you know, tell the Department of Education that their total number of women athletes is as high as their total number of male athletes, but there's not a bunch of people coming to the games. And so the main point... Of, yes, go ahead. I don't know, Gabriel. So I thought it was an amazing point up until the sort of viewership thing, right? Because if I'm thinking about this through the lens of, let's say, U USA professional soccer, mm -hmm. right? right? We have a women's team that has a huge following, yes. right? And who wins. And then we have a men's team. But that's at the Olympic level. I'm, not, I'm talking about for the colleges themselves. No, I get that. But what I'm saying is I'm wondering whether or not another interpretation of what's going on it doesn't have to do, it doesn't actually have to do with you know how popular the sport is right within the the school community because sometimes schools do have sports just because they want to ensure that there's solidarity right um it's not about that so much as it is that no matter how much of a following the women had the, the institution just still wouldn't view them the same way they view men's sports right well well let, let me let me just finish my point and then you can criticize it okay. so uh, um, you, you're not going to see the men's football coach selling slots uh, and, and, you know, basically selling the poll they have with the admissions office to parents who want to get their kids in because the men's football coach fundamentally makes money by making an enormous salary, typically bigger than the college president, um, which is based on them winning games. And if they don't win games, they get fired. And when you see scandals involving men's football coaches, which are common, um, it's either it has to do with recruiting athletes 
you know, and violating NCAA rules to pay the athletes, which, you know, that that's a whole nother conversation, um, you know, that they probably should be able to pay the athletes because in effect, uh, college football and college basketball are really minor league professional sports and everybody knows it. But that said, it still is illegal for them to do so, or at least a violation of NCAA rules. And so when men's college, uh, football coaches, uh, get in trouble, it's for paying the athletes, not for getting paid by the athletes. And the reason is because the most valuable thing to a men's football coach is winning because that's what their salary depends on. Whereas to a, say a women's soccer coach or a women's crew coach, they're making much less money, typically about 10% of what the men's football coach would be making. And, um, it's not as important to them that their team wins and that they get the most competitive athletes onto their team. And so it is feasible to imagine bribing somebody. And in fact, that happened. That's a big part of the indictment. So I'm saying, I'm saying in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Gabriel, I could also look at it this way, right? So, I mean, hypothetically, one could be at a school, right? That's div one, right? Where, you know, whatever, the football coach understands that his job is to get as many wins as possible. Yes. But he also knows that the, the amount of funds that he has in order to recruit and like give scholarships, et cetera, to, you know, the best, uh, you know, football players out there is diminished because his institution doesn't have as much money set aside for that purpose, right? Which then means, of course, that his salary is probably lower than the salary, right, at those other schools. So if you know you're going to keep losing to these schools anyway, wouldn't you have an incentive to be like, yeah, sure, I'll give you one of those spots? I think almost by different. I, I don't, I know very little about college sports other than that it drives me crazy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I kind of think by almost by definition, somebody who was losing that consistently wouldn't be division one. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm thinking that there's so much money in being a college football coach that your goal is to win. And, you know, if, if you're making a hundred thousand dollars, you know, not the, you know, several million dollars that the USC football coach is making, your goal is to win enough that you get hired away from your school by USC. Sure. Right. And, and, and you're not going to do that by taking a hundred thousand dollar bribe to say that some 140 pound kid with asthma is your next uh, running back recruit. What about $400,000? Well, that might be right. Retirement score. I was just going to say that I, I think the cost of uh, paying coaches, even at the lower level, is still pretty high. At the University of Memphis, when Anna and I first started teaching there, uh, the, the football program was terrible. It's not in the SEC, so they weren't able to recruit the players that. Uh, Mississippi and Alabama and LSU could recruit. And so, and most of like the Memphis kids that were coming to the University of Memphis were basketball players because the program was just better, had a, had a longer history. When I was there five in five years, we had three coaches. They're still paying the salary of at least two of those coaches and they're hired somewhere else. And they were definitely getting paid well over $100,000 each per year uh, with the biggest coach making even more money at some point because the program sort of turned itself around. So there's, there's big money, at least in football and, and basketball for sure, even at, at the lower end. And I think the goal really, I, I think Gabriel's right. The goal is to just 
keep coaching wherever you can coach and hope that if your team does good one year, you know, a, a team steals you away. That happened again at Memphis. That happened. And we had a, a coach that turned the football team around in, in a single year. And the University of Houston picked him up for like a million a year, which and, and Houston isn't a huge college football program either. But now I suppose it is. All right. So uh, the one thing that we can all agree on is that college sports isn't about edifying young people, right? Like it's a profit center. <laughs> Absolutely. Like. Yeah. Well, it, it's not even a profit center for every school. Like there are plenty of schools that lose money on their athletics programs. Yeah. And even in the programs that have really good uh, football teams that make a lot of money, the rest of the sports actually lose quite a bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and to a large extent, um, athletics as a whole is a loss leader to justify the existence of uh, football and sometimes basketball. Mm -hmm. So football and basketball typically, men's football and basketball, uh, will sometimes make money for schools. But, you know, nobody's going to see uh, the Tiddlywinks team. And, you know, so when you factor in the Tiddlywinks team, even though the Tiddlywinks coach makes much less money than the football coach, um, the athletics program as a whole is going to lose money. Mm -hmm. And the only way to justify it is making money as a whole is if you assume that a lot of alumni giving is tied to, uh, you know, football victories, which is plausible, you know, at a lot of schools. I mean, if you talk to development officers, they'll tell you that that's very often the case. Um, you know, nobody is saying I'm going to, you know, write my alma mater into my bequest because, you know, um, somebody in the social department just wrote an ASR. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so the other thing I want to talk about is this Reuters 2016 story. Uh, it was actually a series of stories. It was one of those things where you could tell they're going for the Pulitzer. I, so yeah. I didn't. I have not had a chance uh, to check it out, Gabriel. So. See, but but you and nobody else, right? I mean, <laughs> uh-huh. that, that's my point. Is that none mm-hmm. of you guys know about this? And it documented a much more systematic uh, cheating in college admissions and SAT and all that sort of thing. Huh. Um, and so. Uh, let me briefly synopsize it for you. So in 2016, Reuters had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine stories on um, college admissions, uh, mostly involving um, students in China getting into the uh, American universities. Mm-hmm. And uh, the broad gist of the story is you have um, college admissions consulting companies and or test prep companies, which are sometimes the same company, sometimes not. And they get uh, leaked copies of the SAT and pre- uh, prepare cheat sheets for the students um, or otherwise find ways for them to cheat on the SAT. Um, they will flat out write the application essays for students, make up parts of their uh, their biographies, uh, You know, also cheat on the TOEFL, which is the English language test. Um, mm-hmm. And then on top of this, there's ties between these companies and admissions officers, especially from kind of middle-ranked U.S. schools who want to get more students because they depend on the tuition money, um, especially since the financial crisis where, you know, the big story in higher ed is uh, state legislatures aren't funding universities anymore. And so they're financing um, themselves based on uh, cash, uh, you know, paying customers mm-hmm. uh, from overseas. Right. So, uh, you know, the the admissions officers know this and it's mostly they're doing it for the tuition, but there's a certain amount of stuff in that they're taken on junkets and sometimes given honoraria to speak at dubious conferences. 
So kind of like a pharmaceutical marketing story almost, except with college admissions officers. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is pretty systematic and it's an open secret and uh, people don't really care. So anyway, so Reuters wrote the story in 2016. It documents a much more systematic thing than, you know, a few dozen rich kids and celebrity kids getting in to be, you know, Instagram influencers from their dorm room at USC instead of their dorm room at Arizona State. Mm. And nobody cared, right? This was not a big deal. Uh, And so I had a few hypotheses as to why. Um, So one would be that the story came out in 2016, which, you know, I mean, all of life has been crazy since we touched the orb. But, (laughs) you know, 2016 was a crazy year. And so, you know, media scholars talk about something called a news hole, Mm which is basically a fancy way of saying, you know, you get coverage for less urgent stories when it's a slow news day. And there was not a single slow news day in 2016. <laughs> the past two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you could also say that it's not a slow news day now, mm-hmm. yeah. right? I mean, you have Paul Manafort going to prison and that sort of thing, but it, it, this still blew up. Right. Uh, another thing could be that it was something about it being Americans rather than um, international applicants to American schools. Oh, can I chime in on this one? Yeah. Because yeah. here's here's my thing. First of all, I'll tell you right now, nobody who goes to CUNY gives a crap about anything going on in the public system, right? This I, I'm guessing that the people who are most mad about this are people who are also trying to spend their kids' ways into elite schools too. Oh, absolutely. But they don't have the money to do it. So like they moved into their nice segregated suburb, right? And they have their kid playing high eye or whatever. <laughs> Uh, but they don't have the money to do the bribe and that's what makes them mad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the same way that like when people talk about inequality instead of poverty, that really means somebody who makes $150,000 a year is mad at people who make a million dollars a year. It doesn't mean it's people who make $28,000 a year are mad at people who make a million dollars a year. Um, So anyway, so you have the the whole thing of it's international. Another thing is just the celebrity angle, right? If you Mm -hmm. imagine that there were two fewer uh, defendants, right? So you have the exact same story, except there's no Felicity Huffman and no uh, Lori Loughlin. Uh, you know, would this have blown up in the mm-hmm. same way? And then the last would be that um, the Reuters story was just a, uh, a journal investigative reporting, whereas this is, you know, a U.S. attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something about the U.S. attorney actually putting people in jail uh, makes it more newsworthy than it just being a, a piece of investigative reporting. So anyway, do you guys have any, which, which of those, uh, and obviously they're not mutually exclusive, but how much power would you assign to each of those and to, as to why this is a massive story and not that many people are aware of the Reuters story? I have a, another alternative, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, something that Seth and I have noticed in, in suicide research is that like, we pay a lot more attention to a suicide death that contradicts our expectations for who might die by suicide. Uh, And so, um, and so I could imagine a way in which something that fits, you know, some sort of narrative about what we believe about the deservingness of foreign students just doesn't ruffle feathers the same way as this story about, you know, a bunch of, of fairly privileged kids, you know, essentially violating our understanding of what the American dream is, right? That is like our, is our sort of one of our dominant cultural logics in the United States, right? Hard work earns you entry into an elite college. Whether or not any of these are true is is not the point, right? It's that this is how we imagine. And this is, um, you know, with these celebrity kids or these, you know, elite kids, you know, bribing their way into college, that very much contradicts what we 
believe is like true and good in the United States. And it may be that, you know, we just perceive foreigners as not holding those values to the same extent, or maybe we have particular cultural biases about Asian um, international students that, that just isn't quite as shocking. Or we all see them as cash cows. Or we just see them as cash cows. And so it doesn't surprise us that, you know, they're just, that process begins easier. I mean, in fact, I think we definitely, you know, see international students as, you know, very lucrative sources of income to save our... Well, that's it. That's the understanding within higher ed. I think if you, you know, walked over to someone in Starbucks and asked them that, they, they wouldn't necessarily know that... I, I think that's an open secret within higher ed right. that... Um, foreign students are a cash cow and basically, you know, our profit center. Yeah. But I don't think people in the general public know that. And so I'm not trying to explain why the story blew up in academia. I'm trying to explain why. I mean, this is a huge story, right? You had Good Morning America and, you know, going viral on Twitter and all that. Right. But I think that the other point that we're more willing, we, you know, believe that we are sort of more distrustful of foreign, you know, students Mm -hmm. than, you know, American students. That's the point that I really... I'm trying to make, not that. Sure. I also think, I, I think Anna's totally right about that. I think there's this presumption that, oh yeah, those people over there, we know that they cheat, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it goes back to old mm-hmm. tropes about um, about Asians and Chinese in particular in American history and our inter, our like foreign, our interactions with them on the international stage. That's number one. Um, but I also think that number, I, I also think the second thing is, and now I can't remember what the second thing is because I went down that rabbit hole. Okay, never mind. I, I, <laughs> I was just going to say that I think the celebrity angle does matter. Uh, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I just clicked on CNN. That's how I found the, the indictment list. And on Twitter, too, everybody's just talking about those two women, those two actresses. And while I think it would still be a big deal, I think that when celebrities, especially not like Kim Kardashian celebrities that are kind of trying to shock us, but celebrities who we think we know from their characters do something like this. I mean, my generation grew up with Laura Laughlin in Full House, and she was just like the really nice aunt, right? That was, she was straight and she was good. And it's like almost so counterintuitive to think that these people are actually real humans outside of their characters. And so it draws so much attention to them. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociological podcast. Special thank you to Anna Muller of the University of Chicago and Seth Averton from the University of British Columbia. We're on the web, www.sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Seth Moreno. On behalf of Leslie Hickson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Thanks for having us. Bye. Thanks.